Welcome to Old Town New World here in Old Town Rock Hill, South Carolina. We're at Millstone Pizza, and I'm Jason Broadwater. I'm Chris Jarvis. And we're here to talk about the ever-changing world of Small Town USA. No, okay. Here we are, as usual, hanging out. Uh, it's me and Chris and Micah today. And uh, Chris and I are both just back from uh, trips. We've been traveling. So uh, Chris took Stephanie, his girlfriend, down to uh, Florida, and she is now part of the Magic Kingdom. So Chris, tell us, tell us briefly about what, what that journey, what's going on with Stephanie. Okay. Stephanie got accepted into the Disney College Program, which is a semester-long, in her case, sort of two-semester-long uh, program where uh, she'll live in Disney housing and uh, work in one of the resorts. and. Uh, but more importantly, get trained in all the, you know, Disney customer service business uh, model kind of stuff. It's kind of their pool where they gather like the talent for the company and stuff. It's like and the they, minor leagues. Exactly. It's 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 you know it's their way of having employee in the employees in the park who want to be there, but at the same time, sort of identifying people who are you know good at leadership roles or whatever, and in, instilling them the Disney cult yeah. into them. So what makes her want to do this? She's just super bought into Disney. I mean, she was uh, born in Florida, and so everyone I ever know, knew who, who was like raised in Florida is just, Disney is just part of their DNA. It's yeah. just something, you know, it makes sense. And Well, you weren't raised in Florida, and Disney, is all, you're all about Disney. Right, you know, you know actually, funny story there. Um, I wasn't, I was part of the generation who, uh, when I was a kid, Michael Eisner was in charge, and they didn't, you know, they really weren't turning out gold. Um, and I sort of was a little bit too old for the Little Mermaid renaissance period. Um, and when that hit, it, Disney was for girls and it wasn't a thing for me. But uh, so it's, I have like late adult onset Disney interest. Syndrome. Syndrome. Yeah. yeah, it was actually, what, I went to a museum for uh, like a Walt Disney Museum and learned about <clears throat> whatever his philosophy about story and, and creativity and stuff. And that's where I got It's hooked. your fascination with him as a as a game changer individual. Exactly. That drives a lot of your interest around Disney. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My lifelong uh, hero is Steven Spielberg, and this is and the the Walt Disney thing is sort of like, you know, you, your favorite artist is whatever Bright Eyes, and then eventually you listen to Bob Dylan right, because yeah. of that. Right. And that's sort of what this is. It's like I've spent my whole life being like Spielberg, 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 and I always knew that he did what he did, and his whole generation. Uh, d does a lot of what they do because of you know, what Walt Disney did back then, and and uh, and that and that's where I am now. I'm I'm finally into Bob Dylan. Like I'm in I'm in that stage. Even though I, I was actually into Bob Dylan when I was in high school. Yeah, right. But, but di Disney as Dylan in yeah, that yeah, metaphor. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of weird. Um, no, I hear you, and it's amazing what one individual and that individual's vision can mean. You know, right? I mean, it, it's funny. You know, it, was he a guy who drew cartoons? Or was he a guy who put forward uh, visions of a world that, right. that, ha that changed the way we function as a society? Exactly. You know, I'd say, and I was actually thinking about that on the drive home yesterday, he's somebody who had great success, actually great failure at a young age, like intense failure that he bounced back from at a young age, and then had great success that instead of just 
riding that success, you know, he, he analyzed what happened to him. Right. And it's on the last podcast we talked about uh, beginner's mind, about the, the Buddhist concept of beginner's mind, and that's he's somebody who did that. He had this great win with this ca- cartoon character he made up, and he could have stopped there. There are many people who have that cartoon. It's Sammy Mouse. Sammy Mouse, yeah. <laughs> Sammy the Salamander, yeah. <laughs> And he could have stopped there, but he's like, no, you know, he went on and he applied what he learns to making movies, and then he had this theme park thing, which now it's such a natural thing. We think, oh yeah, cartoons and theme parks. Well, only because of Walt Disney, you know. Right. And and he's, a, I mean, he's a man who, on his deathbed, he, you know, he had this idea where he had he was going to build the city of tomorrow. He had figured out the future of humanity, but he, you know, lung cancer kept him from seeing that reality. But he's a man who was literally on his deathbed like talking about his thing he was excited about in that moment yeah. the guy was always excited about what he was in that in moment the present, yeah. yeah i mean can we thaw him out and learn more about this i wish i wish i could i wish that we could thaw him out but i don't think we can thaw him out isn't i've he, thought about it a lot I feel like he's frozen and i've thought about thawing him out a lot but i thought about I thought, this. i never yeah. really thaw a machine that could do that <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> that was horrible are we gonna cut that no, I think stay. it's gold. Let's stay in Disney gold. But yeah, a lot of people have said, "What well, you know? What if the guy? I mean, he died relatively young. He died in his mid 60s." And a lot of people have said, "What if he had 10 more years? You know, yeah. where would we be if Walt Disney had 10 more years? Would you know people like Steve Jobs and all the stuff he did? Would that have been? Would be? Would we be 20 years earlier than we are now at all our technology and stuff? You know, or the past is perfect because." What could it be otherwise? I mean, right, exactly. You know, but um, <clears throat> well, I also recently just got back from a trip today. Uh, was it today or yesterday? When did you get back? Yesterday. Yesterday, driving yeah. back yesterday. Okay, I got I got back in yesterday too. So, and I went to Detroit. And I don't, have you ever been to Detroit? I have never been to Detroit. I've seen it in many movies. Yes. Well. <laughs> yes, it has saw, been saw, in movies. Yes, it has. I saw it in RoboCop. <laughs> I'm gonna say this. In cinema, not usually painted in a bright light. No, and and neither in news or in, <laughs> in um, anything. I mean, you know, the whole city um, filed bankruptcy. And actually, um, uh, Nicole told me today that uh, J- she thinks J.P. Morgan bailed the city out of bankruptcy wow. today. But I need to verify today? that before yeah, we um, put that on the podcast. Like the Springs family I probably should have looked that up. South Carolina out of yeah. that in the whatever twenties, thirties. Yeah. And one of those uh, big names, I don't know if it was uh, Morgan or one of those guys, and again, we should, we should fact check before we even speak on this thing, but Peter Weller bailed out the uh, United <laughs> States back in the Depression era. I mean, the imagine yeah, an individual and his business bailing out the United States or bailing out the city wow. of Detroit. It's just insane. But anyway, I digress with um, completely uh, unfact checked information. Um, so, Detroit. I went there because I went to um, the National Main Streets Conference. So this, there's an organization, uh, Main Streets something, and um, again, I should look that up on the internet. Um, I just got back from their conference too. But the point is, is that it's it's uh, people who are involved in revitalizing Main Street USA all over the nation, involved in this organization, and they've been doing this for decades. And they've been right about things from the very start uh, that people are just now kind of formulating into doctrines of thinking, like new urbanism and placemaking and all these terms. 
that have come about in the last you know 10 years 15 years whatever um, they've been exercising all these principles for a long time all the stuff we talk about on the show like our podcast or whatever we do here about um, you know that the new services economy is driven by the connected village and how revitalizing uh, Main Street is, is uh, the way that you bring together the cultural fabric of a community and it's what drives the economy. I mean, they've been talking about this stuff for decades, man. Creating places versus um, recruiting uh, companies, you know, all that stuff. So I just discovered this this organization a couple years ago and joined it and listened and listened to the, their kind of emails that go back and forth. And so I decided to go to the conference and it was in Detroit. And, and a lot of people didn't go. Um, Apparently, I learned through this conference because they're like, well, Detroit. I mean, what do we have to learn from Detroit? You know, apparently they hadn't done a lot of things right. You know, but Detroit is an amazing place, and my favorite part about it is this kind of rocky-like, and I know Rocky's Philadelphia, but this rocky-like spirit. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody had a D on their hat, a Detroit Tigers yeah, yeah, like yeah. D on their hat. Everybody had a shirt or a hat. Everybody there was like all about Detroit. It was the comeback kid, man. It was insane. And there was public art everywhere. And um, it was just, it was cool. There was, like they have pop-up downtowns in different districts, warehouse districts. They have uh, craft beer districts and agriculture stuff. And I mean, it's like this thriving comeback kid community in this city. Yeah, it's cool. So misrepresented. Yeah, I mean, and and it, and I'm and I imagine people say the government is um, bureaucratic and corrupt is what I heard, but I, I have no personal experience with that, and maybe it is, and that's fine. But what one thing I'm learning about affecting, changing the world in, in our small way is that you can't do a lot of that within the system. The system is broken in a lot of ways, and. Um, to go into it and be part of the bureaucratic nature and the game that you have to play to get anything done and all that is so difficult. Right. So why not just affect change in ways where you can have more control over what you're doing? You know. Yeah. I mean, we this comes up a lot on, on the the show. Like, what at what point do we recognize that? It's funny how you know human history is all about things change, things change, and things are always changing because that's what they do. But then you have all these sort of like outer shell things like government and systems that don't change. Right. And what, even though people are completely changing and it's like at what point do we stop and are just like, okay, you know, let's just go back to the drawing board and how we do this, you know I mean? It's continually an issue. That's, and we're in such a horrible, like awkward time for that. Yeah. Well, or, or a great time for that. You well, know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. because it's, you know, chaos creates opportunity. I mean, one of the folks who presented at this conference was called um, Fundrise. And um, what they do is they crowdfund real estate projects. And so um, you have like a, until the SEC laws change over the next year or two, it has to be like sanctioned per state or whatever. But, but like if you're trying to do a real estate project, you know, and you can't go get traditional funding because you need to have 30% 40% up front that you have to put down. I mean, you know, people don't have only the the status quo people that run things anyway have that kind of cash, you know what I mean? Right. To, to put down 40% on a freaking real estate project, you know. So the people who are trying to do something interesting that banks don't understand necessarily that it's like, oh, I'm going to open a 
I'm gonna open up in a dilapidated area of town that the demographics look make it look like it's really poor, and yet it's gonna be a co-op sushi bar with a drive-through. You know, you know, the bank's like, what? Like, yeah. what does that mean? You know, and they do their demographic studies, and they're like. This can't be supported, but that yeah, ignores yeah. cultural phenomenons like yeah. hip booming areas right, with yeah. a cool like you know thirty year old chef who knows exactly what he's doing, who's going to open this place. Like it ignores all the human factors, right? So th this crowd rise thing, or fundraising thing, what they're doing is they take ideas that are kind of off the wall like that, and they put them on this website, and they let people from the area fund. The, the, the amount of money that needs to go into the initial part of the project that lets them then approach traditional fund institutions with a, a power stance. Instead of going and begging a bank, man, please help me out, like, and I don't have anything. You, you crowdfund like 35% of the total, and then you walk in with a bunch of cash and say, hey, put it on the table and say, we're gonna do this project. Well, you, you can't do that by changing the way banks think Instead, you do it outside of the context of the traditional infrastructure institutions, you know? They're just doing it outside, and then they go to the traditional people and say, hey, we now have the power that only normally would powerful people have, you know what right, I mean? Yeah. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, that's all, I mean, that's all reflective of what we're seeing, you know, like that, that problem of change and how the things that are holding back change, but change will happen anyway, and, and it will, you know, and, it, and it's, Obviously, it's that's what it's all about. It's, we're moving to this thing where people are controlling their environment, and that's what it comes down to, you know, as opposed to single individuals controlling the environment for everyone else. It's people are controlling their own environment. It's so interesting, man, to think about the difference, the real fundamental difference in in seeing the world when you think that you are you are just. Um, walking through an environment that you're kind of a either visitor to or victim of or something versus feeling empowered to alter that environment for the purposes of, of quality of your life. Right, yeah, it's because, you know, for so long it's been about our world works on, you know, this the group of people that decide these things and then you have a big, great sea of angry dads in their armchairs yelling about how stupid everybody is and that world is the next step is no like we're all accountable we're all part of it we all make decisions we like a, a truer democracy is now possible yeah. you know i mean and, and i and democracy is a wonderful thing but technology and access is giving us an opportunity to make a, a truer democracy you know, I've told this story before. I don't, hopefully not on this podcast, but when I was um, traveling around setting grocery stores, um, and I was, I was working on my uh, novel, uh, finishing up my write, master's in writing degree, and I was working on my novel. That's all I cared about. And I was staying in hotels and uh, traveling, and I was um, setting grocery stores during the day to make money. You know, and um, I was working with this lady who was. We were in there hanging products on, you know, hanging hooks and products on the hooks, and 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 I was talking about how they should change the way they're doing a certain part of what how that industry works. I was like, you know, if you did it this way, I think it'd be more efficient, more effective. We change this, whatever. And she stopped me, annoyed, and said, um, "Train, roll on." No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, she stopped me and said, you know, if there was a better way to do this, they would already be doing it this, that way. And it dawned on me that she and I live on different planets. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... I I can't even comprehend a world where, quote, they have already figured everything out yeah. and they know everything we should be doing and how we should be doing it and all I need are my instructions on how to do it. I, I don't, yeah. I've never been to that world. Right. I've never seen that world. Yeah, and see, I mean, that woman stated outright something, a principle that many, many, many people live on without realizing it, you know? Right. I mean, I, I'd like to think there are many people who, if they said those words, would then stop and be yeah, like, whoa, oh God, yeah, wait, what yeah. the hell did I just yeah. say? Yeah. But the truth is, a lot of people live on that, but they're not aware of it, because that's part of that standard. And we always have to, we're always, I think, probably going to have to fight against the sort of comfortable, arbitrary safety of day-to-day -day life, the kind of like, you know, you take like somebody who... Uh, I don't know, in high school or whatever, realizes that they can always have a conversation if they just start kind of talking trash about right. other people. And so they spend the rest of their life in that arbitrary, comfortable place where they're like, oh, who, this, this is who I am. Yeah. Every time I engage with people, I'm just going to sort of start talking about how much I don't like this other person or whatever. And it's, it's this comfort, you know, and that's what that is, that idea that, well, this is how things work. This is what makes me comfortable. And I'm it's a victim a, of the situation. Yeah, and so even though it's completely negative, and it isn't making you happy, and it's not actually making you safe, you can convince yourself it's making you safe right. and it's making you comfortable, and so you just replicate it, you well, know? you see it in any organization. I mean, like, when I taught ninth grade English in Mary, North Carolina, I was at uh, East McDowell Junior High, and in that school, there were, there were a certain group of people, not that they decided to get together ahead of time or anything, just there were certain people that led that place, that ran that place. And it wasn't because they were uh, given that authority, it was because they saw a world where if I don't step up and do it, nobody will. Right, right. Whereas other people saw a world of, well, they better do that or I don't know what's gonna happen. Right. You know, like yeah. there were those two types of people. And so the people who said, you know, if I don't step up and do something, they ran that place, right. you know? Yeah. And I, I, fortunately, I was part of those that crowd and, and we were empowered and we um, got meaning from our work and you know and, and we enjoyed what we did and then we had to listen to the people who just bitched and moaned and it was because like they're living in the same school that we're living in they're just seeing it as negative because they see it as this giant thing thrust upon them right. versus the reality they're creating. Right. It's completely abstract. Yeah. And that's that thing that keeps you in that sort of safe zone is looking at things in a, a reality is just this abstract thing that you just assume somebody took care of. You know, it's like, and I know this is a, a much quoted man, but like Steve Jobs said, you know, how the big changing moment in anyone's life is when they stop and realize the world around them, these aren't the exact words he used, but the world around them and the reality around them is just something that was thought up by people who are no smarter than you or better than you or no any more than you do. Reality is, is made up of people who just said, okay, here's reality. You know, I tell you what, you know where I had that realization, I can remember, it's very specific. It was, it was this man named Coy Gibson who was the assistant principal at uh, this school that I taught at, I saw this guy, he ran that place, and it dawned on me one day, because I was like, 
I mean, I ran my little classroom, but I was like, I don't really want to get sucked into running this place because I did. I was. I'm here by accident, and my life is taking me somewhere else. Well, little did I know, all of a sudden I was sucked into running the place too. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I was one of like the five people running the place. But, but Coy, he ran that place, and it dawned on me one day. He, he if he didn't do this, that, this place would fall apart. Yeah. And he's just a dude. He's just a guy. Yeah. He's just a guy who yeah. wakes up in the morning and decides. Well, hell, I'm not going to let that slip through the cracks because yeah. this place will fall apart. Exactly, yeah. It's just a perspective. Wordsworth said we have to create the world. I think that's a wonderful quote because we don't fully create the world because we are dealt a deck of cards to a certain extent. I think sometimes it's easy for privileged folks to say, well, we fully create our reality and for underprivileged folks to be like, well, screw you, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly, like, yeah. you started out in a better place than me. Right. Yeah. So I think that we... Um, we uh, Half create the world, I think, yeah. is about the most accurate. What's up, Freddie? Oh, man. You doing all right? I want to see it. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's true that to have whatever kind of privilege that sets you up and gives you more opportunities, that's true. But the thing is, is if, if I mean, the, society will prove to you time and time again that that perspective and that attitude yeah. and that it means so much and more way more than money i don't know i mean there's like the the story about the from the spielberg movie catch me if you can and that that character that you know makes all that money just because he pretends to be right an airline pilot well that's because of that social truth that like that's worth more than money that the the ability to see past the basic sort of surface social world in front of you, the ability to move past that is worth way more than any kind of opportunity or money. No, I hear you. Yeah. And that is the opportunity that you create, you know. I mean, th this conference that I went to was, I think, tied into that concept because all the people there are there because they're, they're creating a new reality in this nation. It's much bigger than, oh, you know, I've been hired to like, uh, bring some people to Main Street, so I'm gonna hire a band and like what kind of band should I hire? It's literally about changing the nature of our of our culture of our social fabric of our economy you know to, to like have a rebirth of um, of localism um, You know as the economy grows it becomes more global and more local, you know, we've talked about that hyper localism because of the connected village because you're connected to the global economy is the reason why we can be in Rock Hill. I mean, if we weren't able to bring money from elsewhere, we wouldn't have enough money to support our business in this economy. We'd have to move to Charlotte. You know, we don't want to be in Charlotte. We want to be in Rock Hill. You know, so so it, we're hyper-localized because we have access to the global economy. Well, this conference was all about that, and it was presenter after presenter after presenter who were putting forward ideas and case studies about seeing a different reality and creating it. You know, th this one lady gave this case study about this uh, place in Memphis where Memphis Slim's house was falling apart. And it, as an iconic blues man, um, they refurbished his house as part of this project and made it a recording studio that was free for the people in the neighborhood to record it. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, this is a neighborhood that's not doing well as far as uh, poverty and crime and these things. Well, all of a sudden, you had this... Uh, social connectivity in the neighborhood so not only do you save this house and, and, and the iconic kind of uh, museum it becomes but 
it literally changes the quality of life of the people who are less inclined, and this is this is you know high level talk, but less inclined to fight for their own and kind of like rob people, so to speak, you know, if not literally, metaphorically, and more inclined to build together, to participate together, to see themselves as part of um, creating a, a future, you know, that doesn't need the institutional they that they feel they're a victim of. It's something they can do right there in their neighborhood. Right, yeah. I mean, I've said it before. There's, there's no such thing as someone who doesn't want to do anything. Right. Everyone wants to do something. And the problem is some people end up putting that energy into negative things. But you, you have to give people the opportunity to do something positive. You know, and it's, if they don't, if people have no options, it's going to tend toward the negative. If someone is, in a, is destitute or whatever, it's going to tend towards the negative. But I think that if you have, you know, a heart in your chest, you want to do something. You know, you have and some motivation. Sometimes energy follows, is like water, and it follows the path of least resistance. So, you know, a lot of times it is. And that's why you see, well, I think that's why you see um, people that are in a, in a world of opportunity, it's easy for them to just kind of flow into college and then flow into a good a good job and then flow into a starter home and then flow and, you know it's just kind of they're just kind of moving along and then people in you know ghetto scenarios are potentially flowing into you know it could be crime or it could be you know, our government dependency or where you're just kind of flowing so I think a lot of people are like water they just flow into it's momentum you know, just flow into whatever paths you have and that's why you have this divide between the socioeconomics because the flow for the higher socioeconomics is like this really privileged flow of college and success. But in either case, you have individuals who fight against the current and do something exceptional, whether it's kind of like uh, upward ascension, upward class ascension for folks who are trying to break out of poverty in the ghetto, or whether it's people trying to break out of the freaking mold of, uh, you know, middle class reality and actually do something exceptional with their lives. Either way, it's the more exceptional person that puts that same energy into fighting against the current than it is to just flowing with the current. Right. It takes a lot more energy to do that. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy to be a RoboCop. It does, which to, circles to, us back. To circle things around. Yeah, circles us back to what I learned they call the Big D, which is Detroit. I, that's their nickname, apparently. Uh, so good for them. <laughs> they should be proud of that. Like D from what's happening? Yes. Yeah. Um, or rerun. <laughs> but um, they also, uh, I've never seen, I might have said this earlier, I've never seen so much support and enthusiasm around just the city as a concept. I mean, everybody was like all about Detroit. You know, everything yeah. they had on and everything they talked about was like Detroit. And I would, I would stop at a bar and I would strike up a conversation and they'd be like, where are you from? Because obviously they knew I wasn't from there. And I'd say South Carolina and they're like, oh, it's your first time in Detroit? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh man, Detroit's awesome. Have you been here? Have you been here? And they're like cool. wow. zealot like yeah. uh, cheerleaders, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It was cool. Good. Well, anyway, I guess I should find some type of stopping point to this conversation. So I will say bye. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Chris, thank you for sharing about Stephanie. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we're very proud of Stephanie. Yes. And I uh, hope she has a wonderful time in Florida. And um, I, I can't say more positive things about Detroit. I mean, you know, people that are hating on Detroit have probably never been there, most of them. Well, that's why that we talked about that arbitrary conversational safety. <laughs> that's yeah. that's it, saying Detroit is a gross, ugly place. I did it myself when you were like said you were going. I left last Friday, and I was like, oh, good luck. Yeah, because right. I'm like, oh, because you know, like, Detroit. Ha, 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 yeah, yeah, Detroit is a bad place, right? You know, yeah. hey, you get it? Eh? Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> that's funny. It's funny because it's like the opposite. No, never mind. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway. Um, this this is these are this is the podcast of our recent adventures to two different towns, and we hope you enjoyed it. And I guess we'll see you next week on Old Town New World. <laughs>